Titus has been left in Crete by the Apostle Paul, this island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, in which there are a number of towns where churches have been planted. As we've observed previously, there's uncertainty as to exactly how these churches initially came into being, whether it was Cretans who had been in Jerusalem uh, on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel and uh, thousands were saved and these Cretans who had been there for the feasts had returned to Crete believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing this word, this good news that the Messiah had come so that others also believed and therefore little congregations of followers of Jesus were brought to birth. Or whether it was when Paul himself very briefly visited Crete as he was being transported from Jerusalem to Rome for his first imprisonment, and they stopped there for a brief few hours perhaps, whether Paul took the opportunity to preach the gospel, perhaps from the deck of the ship, to those who were gathered on the wharf, or whether it was immediately before Paul left Titus there in Crete to put in order what remained in the churches that having visited there, these were infant churches that Paul had just brought to birth by the preaching of the gospel. There's another possibility that we haven't considered, and that is that after Paul and Barnabas had separated, having had an argument over whether John Mark should go along with them on the second missionary journey, uh, Paul went off with Silas and Barnabas took John Mark. And they didn't sail for Crete, they actually sailed for Cyprus, which is another island in the Mediterranean. But where did they go from there? Perhaps they visited Crete. Perhaps they proclaimed the gospel here among the Cretans. Well, however it was, churches have been started in this island of Crete. Little congregations in the various towns of this island where they worship God and they seek to know and understand the implications of the gospel, what it means to be a Christian. But among them are those who do not rightly understand what it means to be a Christian. And there is a great need in these little congregations for elders, for mature men whom God has gifted to teach the truth of his word, to establish these little flocks of sheep in the truth of God's word in Jesus Christ the shepherd, that they may know right from wrong, good from evil, that they may know how they ought to live their lives, in this world. And that then is the focus of this letter of Paul to Titus, that these Christians in Crete may know how to live godly lives 
may know how to do good works. That's the emphasis of the letter. But essential to that emphasis is to have guides, is to have teachers, is to have leaders who are established in the truth and who can teach others the truth also and who can rebuke those who contradict the truth. And so Paul urges Titus to appoint elders in every town on the island of Crete. Within these congregations, as I've indicated, there are those who are seeking to have their own influence on these churches. Oh, it may be that it began very innocently. Here are little congregations and they they want to live in response to the gospel that they have heard. How are they to do this? And no doubt among them there will be some who are more knowledgeable than others. We've already noted that there were Cretans, there were men of Crete in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover and Pentecost when Peter preached his first missionary sermon that presented the gospel to the world gathered there. Well, it wasn't exactly the world, but there were people from all different parts of the Roman Empire and even further afield. And these, for the most part, would have been Jews. Jews who had dispersed through the world and from time to time would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. There may have been some among them who the New Testament refers to as God-fearers. That that is, they were Gentiles, non-Jews, who recognised that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the one true God and who had given their allegiance to him. They were worshippers of him. They were known as God-fearers. And there may have been then uh, those sorts of people, Gentiles who were God-fearers who had come to Jerusalem for the feast. Those sorts of people would have been taught by the rabbis, taught by the scribes in the synagogues, taught the Old Testament... And you know that the Bible that the first Christians had, the Bible that they read, the Bible that they studied to know how they ought to live as Christians, was the Old Testament. That's what they had. And so here were people who knew the Old Testament. They knew the law of Moses. They knew the truths that the prophets proclaimed. And they had come to realise and understand that the prophets spoke of Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Messiah. They had come to believe in that fact. They had trusted in Jesus as the Saviour. They had come to know that all of the sacrifices, the system of the law of Moses that brought hope to the people of Israel in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus That he was the fulfilment. He was the Passover lamb who was slaughtered in the place 
of the children of God to atone for their sins and reconcile them to God. He was the perfect peace offering. He was the burnt offering that needed to be offered up to atone for sin. He was the perfect sacrifice. And so they they knew these things. They understood these things. And it would be natural then in these little congregations in Crete for, for those who had so little knowledge and had come to know that Jesus of Nazareth was a man sent by God who had come into this world to be a saviour of sinners and they had trusted in him. Now, what are they to do? How are they to live? They would naturally turn to those who knew their Bibles, who knew the Old Testament scriptures. And it is this group of people who actually are the problem for the churches in Crete as they were a problem for many other Gentile churches through the Roman world as well. Paul says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And the circumcision party then are, are, are those who are Jews or who have committed themselves so fervently to Judaism, even as Gentiles, that they have been circumcised. And they seek to obey the law of Moses that was given at Mount Sinai. These are influential people in the churches. But Paul goes on to say that among those, that's not that all of them are like this, but among those are those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. The reason for that is stated at both the beginning and the end of this paragraph. They are insubordinate and disobedient. They are not submitting, they are disobeying. The irony is that they're actually trying to obey. They're trying to submit, but they're submitting to the wrong things. They're obeying the wrong commandments. And the churches then need to be guided. They need to be directed in the truth of God's word, which is not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. Of course, when Paul writes this letter to Titus, they don't have the New Testament. They will have some books of the New Testament. Almost all of Paul's writings were completed by then. He, He only had to write one more book, after the book of Titus, and that was his second letter to Timothy. All the rest were done, finished, published, distributed. The churches were reading them, and the churches were recognising them to be scripture, to be the word of God on the same level as the Old Testament. By this time, they may have had the writings of some of the others, those close to the apostles, perhaps one of the gospels. 
whatever they have, Paul would have them learn from these books so that they might not be led away into error, the error of those of the circumcision party who are overemphasizing an aspect of God's revelation beyond what it was given for. And so, as we look at this paragraph, there are three things that characterize these who are insubordinate in the churches in Crete. Three things that characterize their works and reveal who they really are. And the first thing that we see is that their works are focused on outward form. Their works are focused on the things that that they are to do. That was a characteristic of those of the circumcision party. Um, This phrase that Paul uses here in Titus chapter 1 is found in its exact same form in the book of Acts, where in Acts chapter 11... When Peter has been ministering, quite surprisingly, among Gentiles, among God-fearers, among the Gentiles, and has proclaimed the gospel to them, and they have received the gospel, and along with their reception of the gospel have received the Holy Spirit, he returns to Jerusalem to report on this, this amazing thing that's happened that Gentiles have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we read in verse verse 1 of chapter 11 of Acts, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, there's that that phrase again, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You can't do that, Peter. That's against the law. And there we have a hint of the problem, you see. That is against the law. Now, Peter didn't say, Oh dear, I'm so sorry. I forgot for a moment who I was. No, Peter began and explained to them in order what had happened. And in verse 18 we read, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was revolutionary for them. To the Gentiles also. Uh, That's not to say that they oughtn't to have understood that previously. They ought to have known that to the Gentiles also, God granted repentance leading to life. It was true even in the Old Testament. Among the people of God were those who were Gentiles, those who weren't Jews. 
those who weren't children of Abraham by the flesh. And we have some significant names among their number, even those who are in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Israelite. But here among the circumcision party are those who are so tenacious in their uh, pursuit of the law they will not let it go and they feel that they must apply it to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews that the Gentiles they must be circumcised that the Gentiles must keep the feasts that the Gentiles must observe the law as it was given to the Jews at Mount Sinai. And this was an influence that was having major problems in the churches. In fact, the whole of the letter to the church in, in the region of Galatia, the churches in the region of Galatia, was written to address this problem. The problem of bringing an overemphasis on the law of Moses into the church of Jesus Christ. Aspects of the law that had been fulfilled in Jesus through his life, through his death, through his ministry, and that were fulfilled in him, were finished in him, were brought to their climax in him. And yet they continued to cling to those things as though they had relevance, as though they were meaningful, as though they were, in fact, necessary. So that all those who came to Jesus must also come to this law and obey this law. So writing to the Galatians in chapter 3 and in verses 1 and following, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Within the churches in Crete, there are those who are teaching that the Christians need to observe the law. They need to keep the commands of Moses given to Israel. It was a problem that the church in Ephesus had. 
Earlier in 1 Timothy, Paul addressed similar concerns of false teachers in the churches who were putting burdens on the people that the people didn't need to bear. Adding to the truth of the gospel laws and requirements that were unnecessary by the gospel. And we see in this the danger of focusing on outward form. The outward forms of religion. uh, The ceremonies. The rituals. The traditions. Those things that are seen to make someone a real Christian in the eyes of some. Focusing on outward religious standards while neglecting the heart. And Paul's concern is always the heart. He's always concerned about what's going on in the heart. What's going on in in the seat of, of all that you are, all that you think, all that you say, all that you do, that, that fountain that, that produces the life that you live. Well, what's it like, that fountain? Jesus pointed to the Pharisees so often and spoke of them as being hypocrites. He spoke of them as being whitewashed graves. So pretty on the outside, perhaps, but full of dead men's bones lifeless inside. He spoke about their hypocrisy in in giving a show of religiosity, standing on the street corners and praying so that all the Jews who passed by would say, oh, there's, there's a religious person. There's someone who must be close to God, making sure that when they gave tithes to the needy, the beggars on the streets, well, the people saw their giving their generosity when they came to the temple they would throw in their bags of gold coins made sure that was a real clatter going on so that people would look up and see oh look look how generous they are they wanted to be seen they wanted to be praised their hearts were full of pride they were proud of what they were on the outside Jesus says they're just hypocrites. It's all a facade. It's all just a show. There's nothing of substance inside. Paul's concern is for what's on the inside. What's going on in the heart. For it is out of the heart. As the proverb says. That our life springs. It is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Jesus said, it is out of the heart that we live. And these of the circumcision party in particular were so focused on the outward that they were leading the people to to outward rituals for their confidence of acceptance with God. When their hearts were far from him. They professed to know God. 
Paul says, but they deny him by their works. They may be trying to submit to the law, but it's the wrong law. They're not submitting to the law of Jesus Christ. The law that commands us to love God with all of our hearts, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves. The law that is epitomised in the Ten Commandments that are not ceremonial and ritualistic and outward in that sense. But they begin in the heart and they flow out to others in good works. But Paul says of these people, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. He is saying their hearts don't produce that which makes them fit for good works. To love their neighbour as themselves and to love God wholly. And so the danger of outward conformity is a danger that we face as well. To go through the motions. We come to church. Well, that's what's expected of us. Good Christians go to church at least on Sunday morning. And very good Christians go to church on Sunday evening as well. Good Christians do certain things. They read their Bible Every day. Good Christians are exemplified by certain rituals that mark them out. We can get trapped in that. And it's, it's all a show. It's all on the outside. It's not on the inside. And it doesn't produce the good works that are the fruit of the gospel. The fruit of a heart that has been changed by the Spirit of God. And yearns for the Lord Jesus Christ to love him and to serve him. Now it is worth mentioning that there is actually another danger. Because you know, we're all like pendulums aren't we? We swing back and forth. And if there's an extreme over here that looks at certain rituals, certain uh, things to do to demonstrate that you're a Christian, well, the pendulum swings to the other side. And over here you have people who say, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. You don't need to go to church. On a Sunday to be a Christian. You don't need to read your Bible to be a Christian. Well, without saying that we need those things to be a Christian. I would say that those things will be there if we are a Christian. We won't deny the good in those things. The desirability of those things. Do not forsake assembling yourselves together as is the habit of some, the writer of Hebrews says, frowning upon the fact that there are some who think you can be a Christian and not gather to worship with other Christians and to help and to serve and to encourage one another in the truth of God's word, 
to urge one another to love and to good works. There are those who think that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for my sins. It is all settled on the cross and it doesn't matter how I live my life anymore. And so on the one end of the spectrum you have the legalists and on the other end of the spectrum you have the antinomians. Those who overemphasize the law and those who completely ignore the law and see it as irrelevant for us. Both are dangerous for there is a law to be obeyed. There is a, a, a saviour to be followed who himself was totally obedient and submissive to God. The problem with these false teachers, teachers of error in the churches of Crete, is that they are insubordinate and they are disobedient. Either because they're not submissive to the right law or they're not submissive to any law. Either because they're disobedient to the law of Christ because they're not recognising a difference in the fulfilment of Christ for the salvation of his people and the kind of life that is to be lived in gratitude to Christ and not in order to win God's favour. And those who don't think that there's anything more for us to do. Both dangers need to be avoided. Both focus on outward form. One says these things need to be done. Others say nothing needs to be done. But Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. There will be fruits. There will be outward form. But make sure it's the right outward form. The right fruit, the fruit that is coming from the heart that reveals a healthy heart, a sound heart. So that's the first thing that Paul is concerned about. The insubordinate, their works are focused on outward form. Secondly, their works are motivated by shameful gain. He says of them, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Immediately we think of uh, financial gain, material gain. We find that expressed in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5 and his letter to Timothy is very similar to his letter to Titus it covers similar themes it was written at a similar time it has slightly different emphasis from the the the, the letter to Titus uh, but there he writes in chapter 6 and verses 5 and following uh, that these false teachers produce constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And so Paul probably has in mind uh, this behaviour that, that these, these men are knowledgeable in the scriptures uh, and they, because of their knowledge in these infant congregations, they have something to say and they say what they have to say and they're, they're kind of recognised as being teachers because they have more knowledge and because their teachers, like was common at that time, teachers were paid for their teaching. And so here these, these men have taken it upon themselves to be teachers to the churches and supported by the churches. But they're unauthorized teachers of the churches. They are unqualified teachers of the churches. And their motives for teaching are those of gain. Now that gain need not be financial gain. It may not be a material advantage that they seek, for gain can be seen in other ways as well. Paul talks about gain when he talks to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, having uh, listed uh, his uh, qualifications as a Jew, he says, considering those things to be gain in the eyes of Jews, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So we have the word used twice there in that paragraph. Gain the gain of of his his heritage so valued by Jews, Paul now considered rubbish for the gain of knowing Christ. So his heritage was was gain. His heritage was advantageous to him, seen in a certain light. And so it may be not only are these men in the churches in Crete looking for financial gain. It may not be that at all, but it it may be status, position, influence. They are pursuing that. They are teachers in the church. That carries weight. That stands for something, at least in the eyes of other Christians. It gives them position and it gives them power. And so their works are motivated by things that really are shameful. They're not not good things. They're not seeking to teach the church for the good of the church, ultimately, so much as for their own good, for their own advancement, for their own advantage whether it be financial or material or in terms of things like status and position and influence. Their focus 
is on self rather than on service. It's more, what can I get out of doing this rather than what can I give by doing this? And that leads me quickly then into the third thing that we can say about the works of the insubordinate. Their works are the evidence of defiled hearts. I've intimated that earlier. The insubordinate revealed by their works the state of their hearts, the the fruit that they are producing proves the condition of their hearts. Their hearts are polluted. And so their, their fruit is spoiled. It's not good. It's not healthy. It's not worthwhile. Paul speaks in terms of purity when he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. When Paul uses this phrase, to the pure, it's a truncated phrase, really. Uh, we, could, we could add to it, to the pure in heart. That's how it appears a number of times elsewhere. We have it, for example, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when he opens that sermon with what is known as his Beatitudes, his blessings. And he says in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's the pure in heart that shall see God. Or the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, having spoken about Jesus Christ as our great high priest, encourages us to come with confidence into the presence of God and says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. To have a pure heart is to know Christ. To have a pure heart is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To have a pure heart is to be trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. It is only the work of Jesus Christ that can purify our hearts. Our hearts otherwise are defiled. They are polluted. They are wretched. There is no good in us. But when we come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in his finished work on the cross, we are saying that Jesus Christ died on the cross to take away my sin, to change my heart, to reconcile me to God. By his spirit, God gives us a new heart, a pure heart that has been washed, as it were, in the blood of Jesus Christ, made perfect and clean. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as Paul writes there, beginning his letter in verse 5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love that issues from a pure heart. That, that's what's needed. First and foremost, what is needed is a pure heart. The problem was, there were some in these churches in Crete that had a lot of knowledge, but not pure hearts. And what sprang then out of their hearts, as they conveyed the knowledge that they had, wasn't something that was good. It wasn't something that was pure. It wasn't something that was trustworthy because it sprang out of polluted hearts. To the pure in heart, Paul says, all things are pure. Their hearts lead them to what is good. Jesus says it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. If the heart is pure... The mouth speaks what is good. If the heart is pure, the hands work works that are good. So that those who are pure in heart produce good works. But those who are not, well, they're unfit for any good work. To the defiled, to the impure, nothing is pure because everything comes from the heart and everything that comes from a defiled heart is defiled. Even what could otherwise be good becomes defiled. This was one of the accusations of the Jews in the Old Testament in Haggai chapter 2 and in verses 11 through 14 we read thus says the Lord of hosts ask the priests about the law if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Does what it touches become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, that is, some food, bread, stew, wine, oil, if, it, if he touches one of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. And Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. The works of their hands become unclean because they are unclean. They are defiled. 
And here are these men in the churches in Crete, and, and they're defiled in heart. They're not trusting Christ wholly. They haven't devoted themselves to him fully. They're, they're living for themselves. They're not living for Christ. They're trusting in themselves. They're not trusting in Christ. Instead of resting on the finished work of Christ on the cross for their acceptance with God, they are working to gain acceptance. That's the whole point of these ceremonies, these outward things that they are imposing upon the people. You need to do this, you need to do that, so that God will accept you. No! You don't come to church so that God can accept you. You don't read your Bible so that God will accept you. There is one thing needful, and that is Christ. You come to Christ so that God will accept you. You trust in Christ so that God will accept you. You plead the death of Christ on your behalf so that God will receive you. You claim the life of Christ as your life. You live in him. You live through him. You live for him. And so anything that happens, anything that you do, any words that you speak are spoken and done for him out of gratitude to all that he has done, not in order to gain acceptance with God. But the works of the insubordinate are self-serving rather than Christ-honouring. And so they must be silenced. They must be rebuked sharply. This is, this is critical. That people not begin to rest upon the things that they do for acceptance with God. That people do not rest upon the life that they're living in order to please God for his acceptance. Our acceptance is found in Jesus Christ alone. And because we are in him, we live for him. And so, good works that Titus is being urged to, good works that the churches of Crete are, are being guided into, these good works are not to curry favour with God but to display gratitude to God. And these good works are not self-serving in order to gain position and applause in the congregation, but these good works are for serving the church, to do good to the church, to build the church up and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And such good works flow out of hearts that have been purified, through the gospel, by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has led the way in good works, in what they look like. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to God his Father. He obeyed God in everything. He laid down his life as a ransom for sinners, that they might be brought to birth in his likeness, living lives of humility, 
living lives of sacrifice, living lives of service for the good of others and the glory of Christ their Saviour. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to resist the temptation to pursuing outward things, outward forms, to show that we're Christians. It is so easy for us to slip into that kind of mindset, doing certain things to satisfy you. Help us to rest ourselves in Christ and Christ alone, we pray. Help us to pursue lives that serve Christ and his people sacrificially. Help us to know that there is nothing good in us. All our good comes from Jesus Christ. And daily to trust in him and daily to live for him. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen.